Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new number one best-selling book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it by going to russellbrand.com. It's a very good book. I believe in it. I want to know what you think about it and feel about it. Please get the book. Here, yet more free content from me, Under the Skin. Welcome to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Today on Under the Skin, I'll be talking to Khan Ross. Khan Ross is a former senior British diplomat, author and journalist. Having resigned from the British Foreign Office after giving secret testimony to an official inquiry into the Iraq war, he then set up the world's first independent diplomatic advisory group, Independent Diplomat, a non-profit organisation that provides diplomatic advisory services to governments and political and international political affairs, because I'm doing your rewrite of your own intro. <laughs> political movements, sorry. Political Governments movements. and political movements. Governments sorry. and political movements. Governments and political movements left out of international diplomacy. He has written about international and political affairs for a wide variety of publications and is the author of two books, Independent Diplomat, Dispatches from an Unaccountable Elite, and The Leaderless Revolution, How Ordinary People Will Take Power and Change Politics in the 21st Century. This year also saw the release of the documentary about him, Accidental Anarchist. Welcome, Khan Ross, to Under the Skin. Thank you. You are the first person, I think, that has collaborated both vocally and literally on the construction of their intro. I'm a control freak. And yet you believe in the dissolution of power systems. Isn't there at the very heart of you as a man a massive contradiction, Khan? Yes. <laughs> How are we going to deal with that? Well, the first... Life is contradictions. Mm, yes, I suppose so. Yes, evolution itself, individual versus environment, subject versus object. Now, we'll start off with this diplomacy business. You've had a, an extensive career in international affairs. Could you explain what your roles were, what drew you to the Foreign Service and what eventually caused you to leave? Oh, um, what drew me to it was, I think, um, being brought up in suburbia and being very bored and trying to find things that were interesting. And I was very, very interested by international affairs, wars, the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and I, I found international relations really compelling. And so I decided at quite an early age I wanted to be a diplomat. And uh, that's how I became a diplomat. I entered the foreign office. And it all came to an untidy end with the Iraq war. Yes, because I suppose what you were involved in international diplomacy around the failure to discover the weapons of mass, dis uh, mass destruction, which were part of the mandate for the invasion of Iraq. So what that led to what disillusionment? Um, well, I was very heavily involved in the Iraq WMD issue. I helped set up the Weapons Inspection Agency, the UN Weapons Inspection Agency. I was deeply versed in the intelligence about WMD. And so I was extremely familiar with the, the case that the government was making for war and knew immediately that its case was, uh, to put it politely, grossly exaggerated. Um, but also, and I think this was an important thing that's often ignored, that the, the government had um, ignored alternatives to war. And that's a basic moral requirement of war that it's only the last resort. And I had written papers on what an alternative to war might be. And so I knew that the government 
you know, had not taken those seriously. It's interesting that a moment that was personally pivotal for you was also perhaps globally pivotal. I think a lot of people were affected by that, by that war in particular, by the issue of weapons of mass destruction. So why is it that you think it was so important? Um, For me, it was the culmination, really, of um, a growing disillusionment with government, um, with the way one is forced to behave in government. I myself had behaved in ways that I found shameful as a government servant, um, that I defended things that I think were morally indefensible. Um, So that was part of a a process of disillusionment of which the Iraq war was kind of the the cap of it. Um, And I couldn't avoid... Uh, a responsibility to decide whether I supported it or not because I was actually very closely involved. I was our Iraq expert at the UN Security Council, so it wasn't something where I could say, well, you know, this is not my issue. I knew exactly what had been done. So I felt I had to make a choice, and I sat with myself for some months. It was an ugly process. I don't think it was a a clear or heroic process, and eventually just felt I can't go back and work with my colleagues again. I can't sit with ministers and with a smile on my face and, and serve them. You know, it was, that, it was that kind of choice. It was odd, really. It wasn't, I mean, the whistleblower uh, heroic resignation narrative is one that's very familiar in popular culture, but it, it absolutely wasn't like that for me. Prior to this moment where you uh, left diplomacy and you, you left the foreign office, you said that you'd already felt shame. What, why? Um, well, it was sanctions on Iraq, um, which um, uh, were uh, uh, perpetuated on Iraq uh, throughout the 90s after the uh, Iraq-Kuwait war in 1991. Um, e- comprehensive economic sanctions, which were then amended into lighter forms of sanctions, but they did enormous humanitarian damage to the Iraqi society, to the Iraqi economy. And I was very much part of um, the defense of sanctions and negotiating sanctions at, at the UN. And looking back on that experience now, I feel considerable shame at my involvement in something that I think was really morally wrong and in many ways unnecessary. We don't often speak to people that have been inside what we would call the system or the actual power structures that implement the the kind of action that people protest against or that people use for evidence of corruption of the system or uh, hidden agendas and objectives. It's interesting to hear you speak of the emotional impact on you as an individual of being involved with it. What was the journey like from being sort of, I don't know if you were particularly patriotic, but you must have believed in what you were doing, the truth of what you were doing. What's it like to move from that position of thinking, this is what I'm doing here is correct and ethical to whatever you describe it as disillusionment, disavowalment, I don't know. Um, well, I mean, for a start, it's gradual. I mean, I didn't have a kind of one kind of gotcha moment. Oh, they're lying. I'm required to walk out the door. Um, it wasn't clear. It wasn't a black and white choice for me. It was a very painful thing. I mean, I'd always wanted to be a diplomat. I loved the foreign office. I was very fond of my colleagues. I really enjoyed the status of being a diplomat, of being able to say at parties, you know, I'm a British diplomat and wear a smart suit. And, you know, that went down well in New York, which was my final posting. So cool. It sounds a bit like being a spy. And I imagine you're in a suit and having a martini glass and a sort of a Ferraro Rocher party. Yeah, sort of 10th rate James Bond in a cheap neck suit, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was rather attached to all of that. But also, 
you know, it's a great job. I did extraordinary things. I went to Afghanistan. I accompanied Yasser Arafat around London. Cool. Know, just lots of things. What like, was that like? Uh, I wrote speeches for the foreign secretary. Just very interesting. What's he like, Yasser Arafat? What was he uh, like? I'm afraid to say he was very, very, very unimpressive. Oh, no, what do you mean? Quiet, just, didn't say nothing cool. I mean, I think, to be fair to him, by that stage, he was actually pretty aged. Mm. And he was very incoherent and not able forcefully to articulate what he should have been saying. Um, uh and by that stage, the you know what was called the peace process was falling apart, and he was not wholly but partly responsible for the collapse of trust in that process, and he didn't really get to grips with it, wasn't able to defend his position very effectively. And I think you know it's not from that experience, but the experience of being around people in government, ministers, prime ministers, presidents, that it's one of the reasons I became an anarchist because I think it's um, it's all a bit of a myth that these folks are really impressive and competent and know what they're doing. A lot of them are very well-intentioned people. A lot of them are competent, but we put them on a pedestal and we want to believe they are heroic, that they have some kind of access to truth and uh, reason that the rest of us don't have. And I, I never really saw that. Never saw it. but And incrementally, with a, not with a moment of epiphany, but slowly, gradually, over your experiences within diplomacy, you began to think, oh, this isn't a process that we can trust. I began to think that it's constructed on ideas which are not humane, um, <laughs> the idea of national interests, um, which are by their very nature regarded as amoral. States are allowed to do things that individuals are not allowed to do. Above all, commit violence. States have a monopoly of violence. Um, but also that the state system, as I saw it, wasn't attending to the things I thought was most important about the future of the world and the future of humanity. And uh, there was this disjunction between the state system and what the world, the kind of politics the world actually needed. And that slowly became clear to me. I didn't I kind of understood it in a very incoherent way and it took time analytically to get to grips with something that emerged as a kind of commitment to, to anarchism. This is curious and obviously the main reason we want to talk to you is so that you can explain to us what anarchism means, what you mean by anarchism and how anarchy can change the world. Uh, but initially, I suppose I'm fascinated by your because it, it seems to me like you're a defector from the system. So, like you know, the, the the whistleblower narrative is a fascinating one because it's always heartening to hear someone listening to some ethical inner voice, something that transcends their role. Because I'm minded of when Yanis Varoufakis coming here, he said that we're meeting power, you know, in inverted commas, powerful people such as Wolfgang Schauber. He realised that his power only extended as far as his role. Mm -hmm. Their power is contained. And this, from when I heard that, I thought this is a very interesting way. Uh, uh, to understand how systems operate, that people that find themselves in those positions necessarily only have the power that the position affords them. Not to mention, like sort of Chomsky's famous analysis, that if you find yourself in that position, you've already been refined, vetted to the point where you're a person who's going to behave properly. So I think it's mm -hmm. the reason why incidents such as this so seldom occur. It's rare for someone to go, like you know, me going like having the background I have. The fact that I sort of go, I don't trust the state, I don't trust the system. Well, yeah, I was signing on at eighteen. I've had the kind of experiences that would sort of drug addict that, that would lead to that kind of disavowment but you as being a person where it's not just conjecture you say no no literally i see him lying about those weapons of mass destruction i was part of it i constructed it it's fascinating mm -hmm. uh so like your, your rejection of what we would call the state or the system is not wholly ideological it's experiential you went there you tasted it Absolutely, it's experiential. It was um, I reject the state-based system because I saw it from the inside and I saw what it's capable of and I saw the way it made people behave. And I think one of the most disturbing things I felt about it was that, 
you know, I wanted to regard people like me and my colleagues as decent people. And in many ways, they are decent people. Um, I thought of myself as a decent person. And yet you are put in a framework that allows you to do terrible things. And this is the, you know, the history of moral crimes is usually people are put in circumstances that makes them behave badly. People are not innately evil. They wouldn't otherwise choose to do evil things. Uh, but you put even decent people in the kind of circumstance and structure where they can do bad things and bad things follow. And I think that that was one of the profoundest things that I, I learned. It kind of dawned on me very slowly. I took a sabbatical from the Foreign Office um, after 9-11, uh, in fact, before the Iraq war started. And it was kind of... Only was that coincidence Sorry? that it was at 9-11 that you take a sabbatical? Or? No, it was, it was no coincidence. So it what happened that, there? Well, I was living in New York at the time, and I, I you know, for so you're like bloody Zelig, you, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm in Iraq. Oh, <laughs> no. there's no weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. I'm in New York. Like what a bloody hell's going Peter on there? Sellers in being there. Yes. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. You know, the first plane flew over my head and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, everybody's got their 9/11 story, but um, it was a profoundly, profoundly upsetting experience. Uh, you know, I could see the towers from my apartment window. And uh, I dealt with the diplomatic consequences immediately at the UN afterwards. I was in the Security Council negotiating the UN resolution the day after the attacks. I went to Afghanistan after the uh, US-UK invasion. So 9-11 changed my life fundamentally, but also I think profoundly unsettled me, as it did for so many people. It was an epic failure of the sort of thing I was paid to do. You know, I was I was our Middle East expert at the UN Security Council, and we we – utterly failed in, um, you know, the state's basic duty, which was to protect the population. And then once that failure had happened, I saw the state, in particular Washington, construct a new way to legitimize itself by finding an enemy, almost any enemy, in order to prove its necessity to a population that was other otherwise would doubt its uh, its need for a state that had failed to protect it, if you see my reasoning. Yes. Um, and I saw the construction of that narrative from the very beginning. I was with the US government right after 9-11. And for the days following, I went to the State Department for weeks afterwards to talk about Iraq. And we saw how the narrative on Iraq began to shift. And I saw my own government go with it and fail to question it. And it was an extraordinary experience to see how a government and a state um, adapted itself to a circumstance where it was required to prove itself. And I realized that states behave in a way that isn't rational, um, that is ultimately driven by a need to prove the necessity of their own existence. And this is what anarchists think about all institutions, is that institutions ultimately have their own sets of interests, which are ulterior, um, and the state is one such institution. Above all, states and the people who work in it, and I knew this because I had worked in it, want to feel that they are necessary. And sometimes they have to prove it. And war, I'm afraid to say, is one of the ultimate ways that the state proves its necessity. How do you mean? Well, because the, the basic contract between the populace and the state is we give up our freedoms, we allow ourselves to be coerced by law and the, the, the system of justice um, in return for the state protecting us. Uh, both again from each other, but also from other states and from terrorists and whatnot, from external threats. That's the basic contract, though we're never asked if we want to sign up to that. When you're born, you have to go and register your child within days at the registry office or else you get fined for not signing up your child um, to this contract, 
which we're never, we're never asked if we actually want that contract. But it is the basic contract at play. The, it's the Hobbesian bargain that we all make with the state. And what that means is when the state fails in that duty to protect us, it must reprove itself. It must reassert its legitimacy. Is the Hobbesian bargain, you look after us, we'll keep our mouth shut, we won't kick off? That's yes, the absolutely. It's based on a premise that other people are not to be trusted, that without authority we would um, return to a state of nature which is essentially violent, uh, real anarchy of a violent kind where we'd all kill each other, uh, where life is nasty, brutish and short, um, as Hobbes put it. Um, and I don't believe that people are really like that and that the, the claim that we have to have coercive authority to control us to stop that happening I think is an, at best an untested claim. And at worst, it's a, a, an utter fallacy, which we're foolish to believe. It, within it, it seems there is an inherent hatred of humanity. Well, it's, it's, a, it's certainly a view of what kind of people humans are. Um, it is a very, very negative view. It's basically that they are not to be trusted, uh, that we can only form relationships with each other and negotiate with each other about our needs and wants uh, in, the, in a structure of laws and authority enforcing those laws. Um, and, of course, you can see what kind of vision of the human that offers, yes. uh, a very negative one. Curious. And I'm actually much more positive about what humans are really like. Curious that in legislating for this pers presumed perspective, it is realised. Of course, of course. Um, if you treat people in a particular way, if you treat them as if you don't trust them, then they will behave in an untrustworthy manner. I saw this from, for myself in violent, with violence in Kosovo, where I saw a government that was basically uh, shorn of any real responsibility. Um, it didn't have control over its own affairs because the UN was running Kosovo. And as a result, the politicians behave very irresponsibly yes. and incited violence. And indeed that the state itself, even in immediate examples such as our own democracy, is the realisation of this lack of trust, of Absolutely. this hatred, of this ul ulterior and concealed motivation, the inability to reveal that it's truth because it's truth in its truth is its undoing. A very interesting contra-example is what happens when authority collapses. And um, there's a very interesting book by a woman called Rebecca Solnit, which examines how humans behave um, in the absence of authority, uh, in, particularly in natural disasters. Uh, like after Hurricane Sandy, you saw it in New York with uh, Occupy Sandy, people spontaneously organizing to help each other in a way that was much more effective than the state's response. Hmm. But also most... In a way, I think that was most fundamental to my experience. After 9-11, you saw people in New York behave in a way that was extraordinary and tremendously moving and the diametric opposite of the way the government was behaving. The government was saying threat, aggression, we must take revenge. The people, as far as I saw, including you know survivors from the disaster, from the attacks, behaved with tremendous compassion and it was a profoundly moving thing to, to witness. So it's almost like state authority is built on a bogus assumption that we're, you know, inherently bad, that we need to be controlled, we'll yield to these natural forces within ourselves that will lead to sort of chaos and destruction. But quite the contrary, when, in crisis, when people, it's asked of people that they behave with authority and agency in, in response to crisis, they behave with compassion, with cooperation. So how does this uh, lead us to anarchism, Khan? Well, I mean, and your views of it. I mean, you've stated it very well. You've stated the basic problem with the, the state model um, is that it, it actually denies people the possibility of cooperation, of negotiating their relations directly. It, it denies the best of what we are as human beings and that and anarchists believe that actually we can only live the most fulfilled, 
flourishing life and have a, a truly uh, successful society and proper social relations with each other without power and without hierarchy, without uh, institutions governing us. That's the basic idea. Firstly, uh, it's probably uh, already sort of too late into the podcast to be asking this, but we better do it quickly. You know, one of the things we've noticed is like uh, with ideologies that pose a challenge to uh, the present order, they tend to come for someone brought up, born when I and educated in the manner that I was with uh, the deeply, deeply uh, embedded negative connotations such as communism. I sort of think of drab, grey, we're in a boiler suit, the queue's ages to get a loaf of bread and uh, uh, anarchism. It'll be, it's chaos. It's literally chaos. Anarchism, that's a, a telephone box. We the windows kicked in and that A thing with, with a circle around it. But what is anarchism actually, please? Well, I mean, you're right to bring up the stereotype because unfortunately that's what most people believe. But I think it's, it's, it's a stereotype that's perpetuated in order to dismiss the importance of the ideas. It's actually a very rich school of thought. And, you know, it's a spectrum uh, of thought from hard libertarianism, if you like, which is the individual should be allowed to do whatever they want without moral rules, without state rules. And that is the only way to create a meaningful human existence and, and, and in fact, to order society to a more commonal version of anarchism, which is what I believe, which is you do need some system of organization. You do need some structures. Uh, but they need to be um, run by people directly um, where everybody is equal and where everybody has a voice. So you have a kind of minimal level of organisation. Um, yeah. But I mean, so talking to, about if, sort of total democracy, really, like that yeah. if we were just if the only people here were the people that are in this building, we're in Leicester Square in the ironically in the uh, global radio conglomerate, that we the people that worked here would run it, that we would all have a vote and we would, or, or, the way that we're affected in our lives, we would engage with it directly. Is that right? That's right. And, and I mean, I think one of the ways to think about it is direct, direct democracy. But by that, I don't mean kind of localism. I think one of the ways of, again, of dismissing it is, oh, you're talking about grassroots democracy. You're just talking about localism, local councils, all that kind of stuff. No, it is the abolition of centralised authority of all kinds. It is that all decisions should be made from the bottom up. It doesn't mean you can't make decisions at scale for, for a large number of people, but those decisions have to be made at the bottom level. They can only be administered from a, a higher level, if you see the distinction. A, a whole society governing it itself in this way is actually plausible. This isn't just about village hall politics or you know running your school in a participatory way. It's, it's a much grander and, I think, more exciting vision. Can you give us a vision of Britain uh, under this kind of rule? Uh, and indeed, is there such a thing as a Britain? Once you start, uh, like, once you abolish the state, the state as we understand it, once you start mandating power uh, as close as possible to the people by who uh, who are affected by it, what does Britain become? Do we need a Britain? Do we need an America? Do we need these ideas of nation? Are they helpful? I, th I think at a fundamental level, I think the idea of the state is an absurdity. Mm. I mean, they're created by colonialists. That almost all borders are created through violence of one kind or other. And, you know, accepted in a bizarrely accepted as legitimate uh, only subsequently. And I don't really understand why that should be. I don't really believe in borders. I think that all people are, are born equal. And yet our life circumstances and chances in life are, are largely determined by where we're born. And that's not right. That's mm. a fundamental moral injustice. And people, we, we make people suffer for it. But would there be a Britain? No, there wouldn't ultimately be a Britain in an anarchist vision. It, there would be lots of communities that would be self-governing through direct democracy. But I think 
it's not just a mechanical sort of systemic difference. It's a different culture. I think this is, it can only come about through a fundamental, fundamentally, you know, a fundamental different view or experience of how we treat each other as human beings. Uh, it's, it's thoroughgoing from the micro to the macro. And I don't even, I couldn't even describe to you how that might look because I think one of the most important things to understand about anarchism is that it's about means, not ends. It's not a picture of a utopian society. I'm not trying to describe an end point to you. Um, what I would only suggest to you humbly is a series of methods about how we might run our affairs, that we should do so without hierarchy. We should do so on the basis of complete equality and inclusion, attending to the most vulnerable first and doing so nonviolently. And if you follow those principles, you, you will get to a different kind of society. I can't tell you what that would look like, but I can suggest to you the principles of how we might get there. That's, well, that's really important, I think, actually, because usually the methods are what are absent in any kind of utopianism. But this, you're saying anarchism is entirely about method. And the things that you said there that seemed important to me, non-violence, taking care of the vulnerable first, non-hierarchical. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, so are there examples, and I know they are, this is one of those sort of questions, you know, where, uh, where it's been tried out. And can I, you well, the, tell the, me the, them, please? The, the, the one big hor- historical example is in Republican Spain during the Civil War, where in Catalonia and beyond, there, there was a, a kind of attempt to build an anarchist society, but it was in a, 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 a conflict, um, and it was ultimately defeated by fascism. Um, but it was an extraordinary attempt to to build a, a society based on on equality and self government. Workers took over factories, um, hotels, uh, peasants took over farms, uh, and it worked. Uh, George Orwell, amongst others, witnessed it and saw something extraordinary. So it's not just a kind of pie in the sky, uh, kind of romantic vision. It is actually a plausible, doable thing. Orwell's famous account of Cal- from homage to Catalonia, where he talks about the sort of the dignity and the beauty of being in Barcelona during this peculiar interim twilight time prior to the escalation of the Spanish Civil War, is striking to me because it's very much about the feeling that people being empowered is very, very beautiful and somehow, uh, again, diametrically opposed to our current experience of democracy which is i suppose a less informed version of the disillusionment that you experienced with your direct access to the data around the iraq war subsequent uh, and subsequent military activity that we all think this isn't real what's going on i'm not participating in this my life doesn't matter my experience of the world doesn't matter why shouldn't i just you know have an iphone have a wank have a bar of chocolate get drunk have some sort of sensual experience precisely because we we are treated as human beings without agency or with, without impact. So you're saying what anarchism is really, whilst you talk about the methodology, what's likely to be engendered is an experience as a human being of personal empowerment? Yes, I, I think that's you, that's very well put. It's, it's certainly empowerment, but I, the longer I've lived with this philosophy, the more I felt it, it goes much beyond mere political structures and merely about power. That's the start of it. You have to abolish power relations if you're going to get to this society. But ultimately, I think it's actually a spiritual philosophy about how we should live and how we should treat each other and how we see each other and a belief, which as I get older, I guess I I believe more and more that the only thing that gives us meaning is our relationship with each other. Uh, It's the only thing worth having, really. Love, I guess you could call it. Uh, Solitary confinement is a punishment for a reason. 
That's a very beautiful observation. And we've heard before in these rooms that, uh, that you, you know, who are we without one another, that we exist in dialectic, we exist in connection and communication without one another. But I never heard that solitary confinement is a punishment for a reason. That's a very beautiful idea. Now, like this intersection of the spiritual with the political is uh, an area of particular interest of mine because it seems to me that there's something about the current opposition or politics that are... Uh, uh, don't provide genuine connection, vision or motivation for change. There is something, the word that always comes to my mind is sort of dusty, a kind of a, a, an entropic emptiness to the, to the current discourse. And you're saying that there's a spiritual, there are a few things you said there, there's a spiritual component to anarchism and it becomes very sort of personal about the way we treat one another. Can you illuminate us there further? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, you're bringing out very profound questions and I, I think, modernity, the 20th, 20th century political and economic model, capitalism represented democracy are, are basically rationalist models. They're modelling society on the basis of, of notions of what humans are that are um, that are in a sense rational. That in, in economics people are consumers, they will consume until mm-hmm. they're satiated. In democracy they have certain sets of interests which can only be negotiated successfully and peacefully through institutions. This makes perfect sense. But does it capture the fullness of what it is to be human? Of course it doesn't. It's a very reductive view of the human. And that is its tragedy. And that is why it won't last. It will fail. Mm. We are reaching the end of it in some form. And it could be a very bad and ugly end or it could be one where we create something better. But because it's not actually a full account, it's not based on a philosophically full account of what it is to be human, it's not going to work. And this is why it feels so unsatisfying and why it feels dusty, if you like, so dry and entropic, because it doesn't really fulfill us. It doesn't really uh, attend to what we really want as human beings, which is something something actually you can't really describe in rational terms. You can't really describe in numbers or in words. It's kind of indescribable. It's the ineffable. Khan, I'm going to stop you there and ask you an important question. I just want you to reflect on this. What if you could give back while you slept? Don't answer me, Khan, it's rhetorical. Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also, and you're going to like this, mate, socially conscious. Oh, hold on, Russ, is this mattress socially conscious? Yes! Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, for every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 programme. Isn't that lovely? So you're helping people just by laying on your back doing nothing in the night. What what a beautiful thing. Not to mention Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. They're really trying their best at Lisa. But best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive field is designed for all types of sleepers. What type of sleeper are you? Disgruntled? Well, you're going to love this because it's got three premium layers of foam, including one, two-inch Avena foam for cooling and breathability, two-inch memory foam, middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. And you might be thinking, well, that's two nice levels, but what about my core support? There's a six-inch dense core support foam for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes. It's available online in the US, UK, Canada and Germany or at the Lisa Dream Gallery in New York City, where I'm going soon. The 100% not specifically that Dream Factory, although I might. The 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a tiny box, no big than a mouse's ideas of itself. That's how big it would be. It's a very small box to your door so you can save a trip to the store. You don't, you're not, oh, the store. No, it's just at the door, look. No wonder 
No wonder. Are you wondering why it's in the Forbes top 20 startups to watch? Don't wonder. It's because of the things I've said just now. If you've received a mattress and have time, please give a personal endorsement. I'm getting one. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Not if it's in my house. With free shipping, always. And get 80 quid off when you go to leesa.com and use promo code under the skin. All capitals. Do use that because imagine they're going to think, hang on a minute, these under the skin listeners can't get enough mattresses. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com, promo code under the skin. Well, that's Lisa's mattresses. Now it's time for some more of me saying other things to someone else under the skin. Adam Curtis says the old thing is dead, but the new thing is not yet born. This could be the new thing, couldn't it? Uh, Perhaps because the organs of uh, capitalism and commercialism and contemporary uh, international state politics have provided us with many of the tools that could mean that the communities could cooperate and assemble uh, locally, but also, as you said, uh, at a a sort of a macro level. Um, So um, what's the thing that I need to know that's sort of super important there? Oh, yeah, say that. What's that Porto Alegre, sort of that place in Brazil where they go, yeah, I have the budget and what people do? Yeah. Well, it's a city, a uh, fairly large city in Brazil, where they have um, uh, practiced mass participation in, in decision making and deciding the city's budget. And um, I mean, it's not a full anarchist society. It would be wrong to claim that it, it, they don't decide everything, uh, but they decide the budget priorities. And what has happened over 10 years is that it's had an extraordinary impact on how the city looks, that the city has become much more equal that the provision of services has become much more even between rich and poor areas, hospitals, schools, um, sanitation. Uh, But also, interestingly, that party politics has kind of disappeared uh, because the opportunity for elites to compete uh, for the spoils of government has been uh, destroyed through a transparent decision-making process. And that shows that you can do it at at the scale of a city. Um, So it's it demonstrates the plausibility of of direct democracy at scale. But Mm. just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, there's a kind of paradox that capitalism has given us the tools to connect and organise in a way that we didn't have. I'm not so sure because I think that the whole kind of virtual connection, you know, internet democracy is is a bit of a a red herring in a way. Yeah, because I think our connections are are only really formed face-to-face. And I think we can only really arbitrate our differences face to face if you i mean studies have demonstrated that when people argue online they become more polarized not not less um and this is what we see of course in the internet you know incredibly horrific uh, uh, anger frustration and polarization of different tribes and groups um but i think once you are in the same room as somebody and we're discussing say you know, the future of our kids' school, I will not see you as a Tory or Labour person or Republican or a Democrat. I will see you as a guy with kids at the same school as my kids and somebody, therefore, with a common interest. I will see you as human, as something more than your political label. And a a political scientist called Stanley Fishkin at Stanford has modelled this in in, uh, psychological experiments and indeed demonstrated that when people meet in person, they are more likely to to come to consensus. Hmm. Uh, Yet another ineffable, hard-to-quantify component that means that, uh, that demonstrates that we are forming societies and structures that are not demonstrative of what it is to be human. Do you s- turn to, anth- when looking at this uh, anarchism, do you r- reference anthropology and like the, the perhaps ideas of how primitive 
cultures may have organised, like, well, we're meant to, like, for example, you know, when Yuval Noah Harari come in here, he talks about, like, you know, like, you know, sort of a chimpanzee society will be 75 to 100 apes and beyond that, people start getting a little bit confused and they, it fragments and splinters and people can't get along. Have you, like, do you look at how do human societies uh, organically form and behave when they don't have uh, the external power forces influence them and control them and manipulate them is that an important part of anarchism i mean it might be analytically how some people get there it wasn't my journey uh, partly because i think those examples you know they're they're taken out of context we live in an extraordinary circumstance in in the 21st century i mean nobody's ever lived like we live now humanity is confronting these extraordinary remarkably confusing challenges and i think we have to attend to the facts of those um and I find that, you know, sufficiently challenging and absorbing that I don't really need to, or find the need to look back at different forms of human society, which were in very, very different circumstances or indeed other animals. Because you're not trying to find some essential model. You're just saying live by these principles and the model will appear. This is why there's not a vision. Because it's not like going, hold on a minute, human beings are supposed to live like this. Why don't we create that? It's more like, well, if we have no hierarchies, if we don't allow the exertion of power, if we look after the vulnerable, what we'll formulate will be necessarily fair. And yeah. In a sense, these are moral normative rules that one hopes would be propagated by our own behaviour rather than through rhetoric or through theory or by top-down authority. But I think, um, I think you know, I don't, I don't find it necessarily particularly instructive to look at other examples. I think we have to look at facts of how they are today. It's very, very difficult to look at facts. And theory is very confusing. Yes. And I think the only thing we can really do is practice. Now, given that you've said that, Khan, that we have got to look at facts, the fact of the matter is this. What we live in is a... Uh, we live under materialistic rationalism. We live in a secularised democracy. We live where the, the way that power functions is mostly concealed and not many people have been in the extraordinary position of having experienced it, having been through the looking glass, down the rabbit hole, all those Lewis Carroll things, had a good butcher's round and come back to us on the other side, having awoken in the pod and said it's all balderdash. Now, how do we get these populations to transition from where we are now and like to work in one of these buildings you know is in, in some sense is a, a great privilege but you can see how it's become post orwellian some bizarre kubrick it's happening it's happening people are becoming cyborgs people are the agency is deteriorating and you know speaking as we have recently done to a sort of um, a very brilliant uh, marxist professor who tell you that like the like now We've had, our desires and needs have been so have stim, been stimulated to the point where you know, we identify as consumers. One of the spiritual things that you talked about there, mate, uh, about like how it will change our interpersonal relations, is something that recurs to me: is that I inadvertently have learned to commodify relationships. That one of the things that I unconsciously do when meeting people is, you know, and I have to pick myself up on it continually, is you know, like what 
does that person mean to me? What can that person give me? When I was a single person and it was females in my case, it would be like, oh, is this a person that I will be having sex with? If it's a male, am I intimidated by this man? Is this someone that I need to be able to control? You know, like that. The, for me, this is an, a, an important component of capitalism and, uh, and I suppose through your lens, state dominance is that I behave as a consumer in my own consciousness, in my uh, most intimate relationships. It's, you know, who is the I that I'm dealing with when it's been so deep when i've been so deeply inculcated to behave in this way and we're talking about this on a huge huge scale we're talking about people that are deep like you know like the the understandable and rational apathy of dispossessed populations and when, you know without getting into bloody other populations i'm talking about sort of anglophonic cultures where people mm. are relatively affluent in some parts of the population mm. how do you you know without i know you continually reference the cri- the impact of crises do you think that without crises or without major decimation in crisis it's possible to induce this kind of change and to present these kind of ideas in a way that seems feasible plausible and attractive um i do uh, otherwise i don't think i'd uh, pursue this philosophy right, otherwise I this mean, would just I, be I a mean, laugh in my moments of despair <laughs> I, I don't imagine you'd gone no um, <laughs> but but i actually think change is extraordinarily easy in some ways i mean we think that the, the system is is kind of stuck and you know we're locked in kind of apathy and anesthetized reality and nothing is possible but people have overcome far far worse circumstances than we're in today and and change happens remarkably quickly have and they what, what like fascism yeah, that's um, terrible you know um Communism. I mean, mm. look at the, the people thought communism would last forever. The Soviet Empire, that it was a kind of permanent fixture. I've got to say, though, at this point, because oh, you're obviously extremely clever, so I'll tell you this thing. Don't you think that what appears to be change superficially is actually the managed mutation of power systems as it continues Often. with its own narrative, e.g. the number of Nazi scientists that were incorporated Absolutely. into American culture. You know, Look at how Russia is, uh, and the former Soviet Union nations are uh, currently run. That whatever, wherever this power is, that we experience as state power, we experience as democracy. I'm not getting into conspiracy stuff. I'm just saying that power necessarily conceals itself in order to perpetuate itself. So even things like the defeat of fascism, and obviously that's a great thing from one narrative perspective and there's no version of it where i go oh they should have carried on with that fascism yeah. like it actually those powerful interests continue to be represented continue now to be represented uh i mean i think power is a danger in all circumstances and there's certain types of people and groups of interests that will try to exert it in any circumstance and it always has to be resisted i'm talking about a continual process of political effort and struggle uh, that will endure even once new status quo is effective and, and achieved but I do think actually change is really plausible now, A, because news is communicated really fast today. You know, something that we did today in London would be understood in Tokyo um, tomorrow or even quicker than that. And I think the power of example is extraordinarily strong. That if, you know, I don't believe in talk, despite the fact I'm an expert talker myself. Yeah, and I here I talking. am talking. Well, it's brilliant, um, isn't it? But I actually believe in the power of example of people behaving differently, setting up new structures, new kinds of institutions to do things differently. And when people see that, they are inspired and they can change things. What should we do then? Well, I mean, I think you have to start with your own thing that you know about, um, the you know, the professional life that you have, your personal circumstances, your social circumstances, and try to attend to those. Start with the small and the small eventually 
becomes the big. But I think even the big can be changed. I mean, after Occupy Wall Street, some of us tried to start a bank, a cooperative bank across America, because there is no cooperative bank for the whole of America. It's actually illegal. Private, the private banks have captured Washington to such an extent that it's illegal to have a national cooperative bank. But it wasn't. I mean, we failed and it was Why? difficult. Um, but it wasn't implausible. Why did you fail? We failed because we were a group of volunteers and we had day jobs and we couldn't give it enough time. We failed because the legal defenses of the current monopolistic banking system in America are extremely formidable and Mm. difficult to overcome, but they were not impossible to overcome. And setting up a, a commonly owned cooperative bank that's owned by its customers and staff is not an implausible thing. And actually, it's a good idea because it could plausibly undercut the big for-profit banks. That is one example mm. of an implausible piece of change good that could, could be, you know, a very big thing. Um, you know, this once you break it down into practical stuff, um, I think it's, it's, it becomes much more doable, small steps to a big change. At some point, it's likely that there will be considerable conflagration. Now, I know that nonviolence, and I obviously agree with the, the ideology of nonviolence, but like, say if you, if you were to identify targets, say you were to say uh, to a point, right, we're going to take over this organisation. This organisation should be owned by the people that work there. Say you would say Tesco or Asda, Tesco should be owned. Like the first thing that's going to happen is like, oh, no, 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 no. Tesco's owned by its shareholders. Like at some point, like to, to meaningfully demonstrate these principles, you would have to attack some very, very powerful interests. And like we said at the beginning of the podcast, the reason that these words like anarchism and communism have come like sort of old, fogey, stupid joke words that are like related to punk and madness and crap is because they're these systems have potential these systems could bring about change mm-hmm. so do, like how like if you were to identify a tar- like a sort of an attractive and appealing target an attractive and appealing idea like we think you know i know that's sort of john lewis is you know to a point mm-hmm. worker run mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. would like you know to demonstrate change to demonstrate efficacy how would you go about that you know this is what like in my personal limited 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 experience when i said something like don't vote it's pointless like mm-hmm. so there's still a kind of kickback around that still when people write about that now it's mm-hmm. deliberately misunderstood that people deliberately, you know, so like, so like, but in a way, I noticed it caused a slight rupture. It caused caused attention because it mm. it created a little fissure for a moment. People went, "I don't like that," because certain people went, yeah, "Yeah, he's telling the truth." I'm not saying that I'm some brilliant social architect. I'd love the opportunity to say that later if, if it comes up. But like, what I'm saying is, is there? If you find an identifiable target, like, well, why not? You know, like adbusters say stuff like, you mm. know, shut down GM Motors, attack, you know, like these kind of corporate targets. Because a lot mm. of us, a lot of people think that's where the power really is. The state power really is now at the behest of these transnational interests. Is that right? Mm. Do you think? Uh, yes, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I saw it for myself. I saw the access that corporate power had within the halls of places like the Foreign Office, that they had much more access than ordinary people or NGOs or human rights activists or whatever. So say if we voted in some very progressive government, in it, like say we stood on a platform at the next general election and said, like, you know, like... We, we love Jeremy Corbyn, but we're proposing that we dissolve power where possible, that Britain is run according to a series of national assemblies where possible we'll Jeremy devolve Jeremy Corbyn power. won't do that. No, 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 no. No power, no party that comes to power in a centralised system gives up centralised power. That's yeah. just a paradox. You don't change what you are. 
Uh, and in any case, the Labour Party is now pr- proposing a very centralised model of social change. I mean, the social change I believe in, the model of how to go about it is not something I believe in. You don't agree with sort of municipal, public, own, or what nationalised ownership of railways and things like that? Not You'd by say, the state, no. Not by the I state. Mean, I don't believe in state ownership, no. I believe in local ownership and communal control and, you know, full dem- democratic control of institutions and utilities like railways or banks or whatever. Maybe a centralised government could start us on the way to that. But they couldn't complete the task. Absolutely not. But it could be transitional in the same way that socialism was transitional. A, to... Well, I don't hear that in the Labour Party's current. No, program. no, nor do I. Nor I do don't. I, mate. Th- don't hear them talking about a transitional program. I mean, you're right. It's because it isn't there. But like, the, but could you know? <laughs> I say we, we, the people, us. Could could we stand to say, look, we want to stand in this election, and what we propose is after this, we decentralise power yeah. wherever possible. Well, there are political parties that do that. I what? mean, there, there is one in Denmark that's proposing that called the Alternative. Always actually... the bloody Scandinavians, isn't it? Yeah. What is it? The air. The well, pornography? it's, it's, it's um, proportional representation, to be precise, oh. that allows it in Scandinavia. A first-past-the-post system is obviously militates particularly against small parties. Mm. But uh, in that circumstance, and indeed, frankly, in all capitalist societies, I think the idea of getting elected to make changes is a naive one. I think we have to create change ourselves. And I don't think we take over Tesco's, we create an alternative Tesco's. I believe not in overthrowing structures, particularly violently, because I think that is a a kind of change that just invites reaction and legitimises the reaction. I believe in constructive alternative systems that are better, that attend to people's needs. And I think, you know, we're, we're very much stuck in a culture of protest and voting yeah. and aggro on the internet. And none of these methods will give us the society we want. The only thing that will give us a society we want is constructing things, institutions, uh, processes, um, forums, companies, changing the nature of the company itself, our social relations from the micro to the macro is constructing that ourselves. And that takes work. And in Occupy, I saw... You know, a lot of people were happy to come to the square and 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 protest. It was a much much smaller group of people who took the time to go away and spend literally years trying to construct something that would endure. So it's a it's a it's work. Yes, it's work, isn't it? It's curious because sort of polarity suggests an integral relation to the other, which you're trying to overthrow you know like if you're involved in the kind of you, you're connected to it you can't yes. break it with a protest movement that's fascinating well, you legitimize it actually i think protest legitimizes the thing it protests against it says that you are you are meaningful you matter when in fact actually this you know these institutions that are iniquitous exploitative dominant socially domineering need to be just ignored because whilst we create something better they will dissolve away they will evaporate because we've created something that is so much more compelling and exciting and human and just better and that is that is a model of change in our current circumstance doesn't require you to go out in the streets and throw yourself under tank tracks doesn't require you to throw molotov cocktails it doesn't require you to vote for somebody who's you know might or might not deliver the change you wish to see it it requires something else actually just a pragmatic cooperation with colleagues who share the same ambition to build something and that is really fun i mean it's actually really satisfying to try and build something new it's difficult you know and you'll fail you may fail a hundred times we it may take us a thousand ships to launch we may need to launch a thousand ships for one of them to get through but if that one gets through then we we can succeed that occupy movement was like that bloody punk gig that morrissey and new order and everything was at you know like it's sort of like it was like this moment occupy 
that seems to have spawned a, a great many thinkers, theorists, activists, ideologists. It's, it ripples us it's very much felt, I think, today. Yeah. It's so, a wave. It's a wave of something. It's a real. It was a real cry out that things are not right. Mm. Uh, and in America, where I was living at the time, it made inequality a political topic that is of extraordinary mm. importance. You know that even Obama couldn't talk about inequality until Occupy came along and made it a legitimate topic of discussion. So that was a huge achievement in itself. But then we now need to reflect on where that protest took us. It didn't create the transformation. We all we all want to see. Now we need to be asking ourselves what would. When listening to people talk about capitalism uh, and, and say the the state, the system, call it what you will, these relationships between powerful institutions, corporate, uh, national, international, it, the what I am astonished by and afraid of is the remarkable efficacy in consuming counterculture how counterculture is promoted into the mainstream how these things become sort of uh, eviscerated and turned into emblems Mm -hmm. so like this uh, idea you have which i think i've read stuff about in buckminster fuller that guy create alternative systems and simply begin living in accordance with them mm-hmm. I, I wonder like what i suppose even though you say this you know that anarchism is inherently not about a vision because a vision proposes a kind of fascism i suppose it has stitched into it here mm-hmm. is the utopia to which we must head no not mm-hmm. like that <laughs> like like so like um it m- means doesn't it like on the ground or where we are in the moment that what we have to do is simply begin to organize things differently mm-hmm. like go oh let's up a, a radio station or a supermarket mm-hmm. or whatever it is that's not run like that and like mm-hmm. what's that what's that gro- the spanish example mon mondragon mondragon well that's a bloody good spanish accent mate <laughs> that you just swapped like out fake i don't really speak spanish well, for that moment <laughs> by god you had mondragon. me fooled yeah. <laughs> mondragon i suppose a little right aren't they what is mondragon what is it it's a, it's a, it's a huge cooperative company a con- conglomerate of cooperatives um that is i think spain's 10th largest company now it covers insurance banking uh manufacturing uh, based in the Basque region. Um, and hmm. again, it demonstrates that a cooperative economic model is, is entirely uh, practical and effective. I mean, it's not problem free. And no, you know, I think one of the other important things to understand about anarchism is it doesn't claim the human is perfect. It doesn't claim that these things will come without trouble. You know, uh, it takes a great deal of effort and it will take imperfection and it won't necessarily work as well as we w- might wish it would work. But it is plausible. I think once you take away the sort of aesthetic beauty, the sort of claim of aesthetic perfection from political change, then it actually becomes more uh, reachable. Uh, You know, it's dirty, it's rough, but it's manageable. It's not something that is uh, a beautiful geometric design. It's It's not a romantic painting. It's something that's actually just about our everyday rough and ready circumstances. And actually, we can change those things much, much, much more easily than we think. We've been told we can't change things. And I think the left in particular has got awfully good at explaining cultural phenomena as a reason change doesn't happen, rather than going out and actually trying it. Um, You know, I think postmodernism has been a rabbit hole that the left has disappeared down into, whilst others have taken power. And I think... Tell me what you mean by that, please, how postmodernity has impaired the left... Well, I, I, I perhaps rather foolishly have introduced a diversion here, but uh, but basically that uh, rather than take on power and rather than create a new kind of society in the 60s and 70s, a lot of 
left-wing thinkers went into the academy and worked on postmodernism, worked on the meaning of signs and words, um, uh, the meaning like of Foucault, the... Derrida, yeah, Bart, even like just sort yeah. of understanding, understanding I mean, power, ra- understanding power rather than practicing it, and believing that that understanding was a way of subverting it when in fact it isn't. It's just a way of analysing it. And actually, what we've got to think about is how to subvert power. You know, they've got it. We haven't. How do we take it back? That's in a sense the only real question that matters. Um, they've got it we haven't how do we take it back simply by taking it back Um, what you like as a person then happy are you (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know you'd have to ask others who are better judges than me of what I'm like (laughs) where do you live what's going on I live in north west London of course you do (laughs) (laughs) no I was from south London though this is my first experience of north west London how are you getting on there I really, really like it. Me too. I'm stopping there at the moment. It's Where quite are nice. You? Whereabouts are you? All right. I mean, I'm going to say it's Primrose Hill. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not far from us. We're in Maida Vale, which oh. is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. What are we going to do? Don't you feel a bit guilty about like what's the old privilege and stuff? Of course. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a guilty bourgeois liberal, and mm. that explains some of my politics. There's no, no question. I had a privileged upbringing. I'm a privileged person today. Um but I don't think necessarily that invalidates what we do politically or what we think politically. And I, I think it's actually important to escape from those those rather individualist notions that the, the messenger is the message. And yeah. I think that's actually a way of diminishing the importance of these ideas. You know, forget what I'm like, just attend to the substance of the of the ideas. I don't think human consciousness behaves like that, mate. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think we do look at people, but I actually, I think, what you're saying is so right that I think it's actually explains what political change really looks like. We look to others as examples. And if we start to be examples to each other and people around us start to do things, then we will replicate them. And in that way, change can spread very, very quickly. And I think people do look to each other much, much more than they listen to pompous words of people like me. Mm-hmm. They look at examples um, of how other people behave. That's how fashion works. Hmm. That's how um, trends work. It's how almost everything works. We're all trend followers. We're all little monkeys looking at each other and worrying what the other other monkeys think about us. And actually, if a few of us, um, you know, start to jump up and down in a slightly different way, then other people might start to do the same thing. What do you think about love and God and connectivity? Do you have any particular spiritual or religious beliefs? Um well, I'm I'm a curious example of a rationalist who's a, trying to adopt irrationalism. I think one of the profoundest political philosophical shifts I made was in, in accepting the limits of rationalism, mm. that what is beyond rationalism, what is beyond empirical description is actually the most important stuff to us. And you can call that spiritual, you can call it religious, you can call it ineffable, um, whatever you like, but it, it actually is probably what is most important about us as human. Because that includes, for example, love. Yes. There's no numbers to love. There's no cost. There's no uh, money price you can put on it. And yet it's the most important thing. It's left out in all calculations of neoclassical economics or ca- ca- capitalism or indeed representative democracy. And in a sense, you know, I guess my journey is what 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 is the political theory that gives us the most love what is the way to create the most love and in a sense the politics that i now have come to believe in is is in a sense the practice of that because to, to treat another person without hierarchy to ab- abandon all power between two people is in a sense to really 
uh, practice a loving relationship with somebody and they can be a stranger. And I think, you know, love has many, many different forms and mm. we've sanctified it and mm. fetishized it as a particular form between people who are in romantic love. But in fact, it applies to almost all human relations. Perhaps with more purpose and value. And this idea of indiscriminate love or, you know, sort of love outside of the conventional value systems sort of romantic love, etc. Anomously, not, probably not anomalously, perhaps deliberately, given that I'm talking about George Orwell appears on page one, the only page I've read, of Homage to Catalonia. When he talks about seeing that Italian bloke like signing up for Poom or whatever it is, he said, there was something about this man that I knew I could love him. I loved him in that moment. Like these glimpses of humanity, as you say, there is something ineffable and difficult to understand, certainly difficult to quantify, certainly difficult to legislate, that you can have, that if you find, if you can in yourself find that connection to lovingness that you're like that when you're online disembodied binary codes flashing across your screen are easy to hate when you're in a traffic jam people ensconced in tin are easy to loathe the lights but when you come from a position of loving yourself and an essential understanding of our oneness which is a sort of a spiritual idea that's been um, many times permutated and regurgitated through Christianity and every single sort of theoretical or theological rather tradition it's a it's quite beautiful and these motifs I think of sacrifice the crucifixion or just out the the pang of connection one hears on reports of heroism seem to be to me because when someone sacrifices themselves for another indelibly in that is the realization we are one it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that I die. You will live. You mm-hmm. will live. And that, that, that awakes in us an emotion that, you know, in psychiatric ter- in terms could be sort of like a benevolent experience of the uncanny, some shudder of beauty deep within us, whether we receive it through art, camaraderie, comradeship, whatever, that there is a sense of connection. Now, so material rationalism necessarily denies that because it's about mm-hmm. what can be weighted Mm-hmm. And what can be measured? What can be given price um, to if, you know, if you ask the dying what matters most to them, what they regret most in life or what what they most celebrate, they always talk about other people. They always talk about their relationships with their children, with their significant other, with their friends or a regret that they didn't spend more time with their children. That's all they ever say. They don't say, I wish I'd bought a Lamborghini or I'd had a, had a, had a bigger car. And, you know, one of the experiences I and most moved by is the experience of soldiers in war. Um, why is it that people in war experience this intense comradeship? Um, why does it require war for us to feel like that? Why can't we have that feeling of comradeship, comradeship and absolute solidarity with each other and total loyalty and a willingness to sacrifice without the, the need for war? What, what is it about the structure of our current political and economic circumstance that makes that so unlikely? And I guess my quest is to try and find a political and economic system that gives us that feeling, you know, of us charging towards a flag together in a cause that we passionately believe in and where, you know, we look to each other more than we look to ourselves and where we value the collective far more than we value the individual and where we would make sacrifice uh, for that for that greater cause, and I think that 
that's you know I, I feel a bit silly saying that you know, I'm a kind of you know here I am a rationalist I'm an economist I'm a diplomat I work on you know all these difficult issues all over the world and yet I think that's what I really really am trying to get at yes it seems to me that you have a mission that some in, in a sort of traditional sense that something has awoken in you uh yeah definitely I mean I, I'm grateful for the crisis that happened to me I'm grateful for being you know thrown out of the foreign office through the painful ejection that I um practiced on myself um you know and in the stay sense of, out and since I'm grateful for the I was walking past the foreign office the other day and trying to confront my demons my anger and my sadness and grief at leaving this institution that I feel to this day um and actually, I walked down the road next to it, a road I'd walked a thousand times before going into work. And I, I felt how glad I was to have the life I live now. I feel free. I feel, you know, I'm my own man. I make my own choices. It's not an easy life. And I, you know, I feel many constraints you know, that everybody feels, you know, money, family, kids, all that kind of stuff. But at least I am free. And um, that is a that is a truly great thing. And I look to others who I think are truly free, people who live a life of existential fulfillment. I don't see many people Nor do like I, that. mate. Uh, but the ones I know and the ones I see, I, I look to as kind of, they're not saintly figures, but they're people I look up to in a sense of that's how we sh- should all live. We should all be that free. None of us should be living under the constraints of economies, of, of economics, of work, of the boss, of hierarchy, of, you know, the... The incredible bullshit that modernity subjects us to, the stupidities of it, the indignities. When, you know, each, we are in these circumstances of war, for instance, or after 9-11, which I saw, or, you know, when we're in a club, you know, or having a great time together, we are extraordinary and beautiful. And there's something really profoundly moving about that. And I'm very, very moved by other human beings in that way. That's beautiful. What a beautiful journey you've been on from a kind of a bureaucracy to a presumably secular evangelicism. So <laughs> it's uh, very fascinating and beautiful to listen to you, Khan. But is it like, don't know what that name means, meat or flesh or corporal, doesn't it? Here you are, <laughs> some sort of transcendent creature from another dimension, conveying all sorts of spiritual information yes. about utopias. Spanish people think my name is very funny. I bet they do. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes. I had a Venezuelan girlfriend once, and they all, all her family thought it was hilarious. Because it means what, like flesh. Yes, well, people still say to me, I'm 51 now, they still say, do you know what Khan means in Spanish? And I say, yeah, actually, I, I do. Yeah, know since I was about three, leave me yeah. alone. <laughs> but actually, it's, <laughs> Bloody anarchist. Cor- it's actually an old Cornish name. It's from, Is it? It's from uh, Cairn, the pile of stones, you know. Uh, that's it, where it, it's uh, the Rosses married the Khans a long time ago. Our surname used to be Khan Ross, my family, so technically my name could be Khan Khan Ross, which would be a bit ridiculous. Come on, give it a whirl. Khan Khan Ross, yeah, so good they silly. named him twice. Boutros, Boutros, Gali. Yeah, never at him. <laughs> He's still in his pod, well, snoozing. Yes, I, I think my chances of being UN Secretary General are, are rather slim. Well, yeah, I think you've just ruined him in the last hour. I mean, <laughs> we, we won't put this out <laughs> if it's still something you're after. No, damn no. it, damn it, can I take it back? <laughs> Too late now, we've got it on tape. Hey, well, I think that's really, really beautiful. I mean, I, I would like to conclude there if you're happy to conclude there because it seems oh, to thank me. Thank you. Yeah, I, I found that very, very educational and very, very moving and very, very inspiring. I was thinking, oh, oh I you. want to stay in touch with Carm Ross. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank Thanks you for educating us. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers, man. That was a great interview. Thank you. Thank you.
That show was sponsored by my new number one best-selling book, Recovery, available now. You can get it from russellbrand.com. You go to a local bookshop. You could copy it out with crayon on the back of your hand if you wanted to, but it's quite complicated. Uh, if you like the show, please subscribe to Under the Skin and review it. Give it five-star reviews. If you like listening to me being silly, then by all means, listen to the Radio X podcast because there's a lot of silliness going on there. Thank you for listening.